Good morning once again. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10? We have been working our way through Matthew's Gospel here uh, at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And we are currently in chapter 10 in a section where Jesus has been teaching his men what we have called the principles of discipleship. And the first thing he taught them, and of course all of us about discipleship, was disciples of Christ are hated by the world. Now we're going to be reviewing a couple of these from last time. And we see this first one in verses 24 and 5, where Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Now, of course, Jesus is saying simply that, look, as I have gone out representing my father, giving this world the truth that he entrusted to me to give to everyone, if they have called me Beelzebub, Beelzebub was a term that was really just synonymous with Satan. If they've, if they've called the master Satan, what are they going to call you as my servants? In other words, they're not going to applaud you when you go out into the world. You know, we think we get saved that, and we, we get you know, excited about the Lord and, and God is really working in our lives and things are changing and we're being delivered. And we think everybody's going to be as excited to hear about what we've learned as we are excited about it. And you learn rather quickly, people aren't that excited. And we're going to see it cost you something in a moment. When you go out and share, Jesus is saying here, look, if they have called me Satan, what do you think they're going to call you guys? In fact, he would say in another place, woe unto you if the world thinks well of you and speaks highly of you. For so they did of the false prophets who were before you. He said, blessed are you when you're hated, persecuted, reviled falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. See, Jesus wanted us to know right up front that his disciples, you've you got to make a choice if you're going to be a disciple of Christ. You cannot love the world and God. You have to love God, the world, or God, in a sense. You've got to choose. You know, remember we said last week that Jesus is very much in the same way Joshua gave a challenge to the people of God in his day back in the Old Testament. He said, choose today whom you're going to serve, right? You can't serve the gods of this world and the Lord God Almighty. You've got to choose one or the other. As for me and my house, Joshua said, we're going to serve the Lord. But Jesus is saying, look, you can't try to love the world and me. You're going to have to choose which one you're going to love and serve. And Jesus said eventually this antagonism. In verses 24 and 5, he's really talking about the verbal persecution of the world. But this verbal persecution and antagonism is going to lead, he would say, to other kinds of persecution. It would lead to physical persecution at one point. And that's why he admonished us three times in this passage. In verses 26, 28, and 31, he said, do not fear. And that brings us to the second thing he taught us about being disciples of his. Disciples of Christ are not to fear the world. And as we looked at last week, he then gives us three reasons why we as his disciples shouldn't fear the world. First of all, because of God's vindication. Verse 26, therefore do not fear them, the people of this world, 
For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Again, the, the context here is, first of all, we're not to fear the verbal persecution or ridicule of the world. As we said last week, those who have studied this will tell you that the quickest way to shut an opponent up, the quickest way to shut, if you're doing a debate or you're opposing somebody, the quickest way to shut them up is to ridicule them. Because there's a, it's very powerful when we're ridiculed. None of us wants to be made to feel like we're weird, uh, you know, goofy, or whatever it might be. Ridicule is not just dis- disagreeing with your opponent. It's bringing their whole character into question. Their sanity, for the most part, really. All right? And you want to shut somebody down from debate, just begin to ridicule them. And Jesus is saying, look, the world ridicules us now because we're disciples of Christ. Jesus is saying, look... You know what? You're going to have to deal with this. The world is not your friend. So you have to choose, okay, between me and the world. But know this. If you choose me, the world is going to ridicule you. But don't fear that ridicule. You be strong. You say what I have told you to say. Because someday we're going to stand before God and God is going to vindicate us. God is going to, to show, in fact, someday God is going to show the entire world that we belong to him and that we were representing him. So one day he's going to vindicate us. But you know what? On the other side of that, someday he is going to reveal every evil thought and deed that the wicked did against the people of God. And he is going to punish them for those things. That's why he said there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. That goes for the people of God. Everything we've done for the Lord's name that was good and upright, even though we were hated and ridiculed for it standing up against abortion and homosexuality and other forms of immorality. The world looks at us and they criticize, they ridicule, they mock us. Someday God will exalt us. He will lift us up and say, these were the people that were really serving me. Because the people of the world think we're, they do think we're we're Satan's seed, okay? I mean, the people of this world think that real on-fire evangelical born-again Christians, spirit-filled, you know what? The world thinks... We're evil. Why? Because we stand for everything they stand against and stand against everything they stand for. But someday God is going to vindicate us and their evil deeds will be revealed. They will be punished. So we shouldn't fear the world, first of all, because of God's vindication. Secondly, because of the world's limitation. Verse 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who can kill the body, listen, but cannot kill the soul, but rather... Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So the first dealt with not fearing the verbal persecution of the world, and the second with not fearing the physical persecution of the world. Why? Because Jesus said the world is limited in what it can do to you. Jesus said the world is only going to be able to persecute you physically and kill you, your body. That's all the world can do. You say, well, that's a lot. Yes, but the alternative is, listen, the alternative is you're so afraid of being judged and persecuted by the world now that you don't receive Christ because you want to stay in the world's good side, you might escape, if you do that, you might escape the world's persecution for the remainder of your life, but then you're going to face the judgment of God for all eternity. So Jesus said, look, don't fear those who can only kill the body, but after that they can do anything more to you. Instead, fear God who can both kill the body and cast the soul into hell forever. That's who we should really be fearing. And that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. It's wise to fear God in the sense that we receive Christ to escape the coming judgment and then live for the Lord every single day. That's wise. 
So we shouldn't fear the world because of God's vindication, because of the world's limitation, and thirdly, because of the believer's evaluation. This is a little bit, this is not as clear as the first two. In verse 29 we read, For Jesus said, There are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. For the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are more va- of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is saying, look, when you face the world's persecution and you're mocked and ridiculed, beaten and maybe even killed, there are going to be times you're going to doubt my love for you. There are going to be times when the devil's going to be whispering in your ear, you know what, you're going through all these things because God doesn't love you. Because God is through with you. You're a lousy Christian. You're a lousy excuse for a Christian. You never, you, you know, and we don't we let the devil beat us up with that? We're our own worst enemy, uh, I'm convinced. You know, every time we blow it or something else, or we're, then we, we listen to the devil condemning us and we say, that's right. I'm just a lousy Christian. Why would God even ever want anything to do with me? So that when bad things start to happen, when the devil starts to persecute, we actually think it's God's judgment upon our lives. Because we're worthless and God is saying, listen to me. If you're being persecuted for my sake, it not only doesn't prove you're worthless, it proves you're precious to me. Why? Because you know what? Those of you who are really mine, I want to conform you more and more to the image of Christ to give you the best eternity possible, reward-wise. That means as you suffer for me, it means you're on my side. It means you really belong to me which means you're precious. Don't let the devil tell you that you're being persecuted because you're not a good Christian. Listen, God is saying, if you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake, it proves that you are standing up for me and you are proving yourself to be a genuine Christian. And God says, I value that. He says, listen, I haven't forsaken you. I have taken the time to number every hair on your head. And i got to keep adjusting that count every time you comb your hair. But I have done it because I want you to know. Is God that concerned about how many hairs in our head? No. He wants us to know, though, if he's, if he's that concerned about the smallest details of our life, how much more so the big things like our physical well-being and so on. So Jesus taught us disciples of Christ are, first of all, hated by the world. Secondly, disciples of Christ are not to fear the world. Thirdly, here's what we pick it up this morning. Disciples of Christ openly proclaim him to the world. Verse 32 and 3, Therefore Jesus said, Whoever confesses me before men, him, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Folks, this is one of the greatest tests of genuine discipleship I know of. Are you willing to stand up and confess Jesus to this world? There's no such thing as a secret Christian. You know, isn't it interesting today? Everyone's coming out of the closet with Christians for the most part. I'm serious. Everyone's coming out of the There's no shame in anything anymore. In fact, we throw parades for people that we used to say were perverts. We throw parades now. Everyone's coming out of the closet except Christians are going into the closet. They're trying to hide out. And look, I'm convinced a lot of those folks don't even know the Lord. They're just unsaved churchgoers. Jesus is saying, look... You're going to know you belong to me if you're willing to stand up for me in this world and confess me. The word confess there in the Greek is a Greek word that means to openly declare your allegiance to. 
to openly declare your allegiance to. And folks, to confess him means more than just declaring him with your lips. It also means to back up your words by living openly for him with your life. And again, the context is in verses 17 to 25. The context is standing up for Jesus in the face of persecution. Persecution. Let me read to you something that uh, Pastor John MacArthur included in his commentary on Matthew's Gospel. He said, and I quote, In his book, I Love Idi Amin, the author Festo Kivangari, a leading evangelical minister in Uganda, tells the history of persecution and martyrdom of Christians in that country. In 1885, three Christian boys, ranging in age from 11 to 15, were forced to give their lives for Christ because they would not renounce their faith in him. The king was adamantly opposed to Christianity and ordered the boys' execution if they did not recant. At the place of execution, the boys asked that the following message be given to the king. They said, tell his majesty that he has put our bodies in the fire, but we won't be long in the fire. Soon we will be with Jesus, which is much better. But ask him to repent and change his mind, or he will land in a place of eternal fire. MacArthur said, as they stood bound in waiting death, they sang a song that soon became greatly loved by Christians in that country known as the Martyr's Song. One verse testifies, Oh, that I had wings like the angels, I would fly away and be with Jesus. The youngest of the boys named Yusufu said, Please don't cut off my arms. I will not struggle in the fire that takes me to Jesus. Because of the boy's testimony that day, 40 adults trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, and indirectly, countless more converts were won to the Lord over a period of many years. By 1887, a large number of other Christians were martyred, many of them inspired by the fearless, loving testimony of those three boys. None of those martyrs knew much theology or much about the Bible because most of them were illiterate and all of them were relatively new believers. But they had a deep love for Jesus that they refused to hide, no matter what the cost. As is nearly always the case, those who died were replaced several fold by new converts who came to Christ because of their testimony, end quote. You know what? I believe if the time should ever come in America where we were persecuted like this for our faith and faced martyrdom if we didn't recant our faith in Christ, I personally believe that God would give grace to every true believer who was facing death to face it, standing up for Jesus. And I believe the point that Jesus is making in these two verses in part, I think the point he is making when he said, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven, but... Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I think the point the Lord was making was that the true test of discipleship is faithfulness all the way to the end of a person's life, even if it means martyrdom. You see, Jesus knew there were those who called themselves his disciples who really weren't. Here in Matthew 10, he's about to send the 12 apostles out to minister. Even among the 12, one was a phony. Judas. Later he would send out 70. And we know that at one point in John 6, many disciples left Jesus and followed him no more because he began to press upon them the 
the responsibilities and the requirements of true discipleship. Many of them were just thrill seekers, guys. Many of them were celebrity junkies. Jesus Christ was the celebrity prophet in Israel at that time. A lot of people just like to, to hook their wagon to a celebrity, don't they? Jesus knew that some of his disciples were not genuine. And so he is telling them, look, I am sending you out into a hostile world with the truth. Don't expect the world to applaud you. In fact, the world will do to you as they have done to me. But you're going to know if you really belong to me, if you're willing to stand up for me no matter what. Listen, a phony Christian, and folks, if you don't think there are phony Christians in churches across this country, you better think again. There are a lot of phony believers. There are a lot of counterfeit Christians, people who are playing games. They think they're serious. They think they really are saved. But their lives reflect a love for someone else other than Jesus Christ. Listen, a phony Christian won't even live for the Lord, let alone die for the Lord. If forced to make a choice whether to renounce Jesus or die, he will deny him before men to save his own life, which on the day of judgment, Jesus said, will cause him to deny that person before the Father. Now look, please don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean that if you deny an opportunity to confess your relationship with Jesus, that you're going to be judged and sent to hell. Even Peter denied the Lord three times. And as soon as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, who was the first Peter? He, the first person he saw, I guess gave you the answer. Who was the first person he sought out to restore? Peter, right? But here's the thing. Peter had a momentary lapse because of fear. He was unprepared. See, although these deny you, Lord, I'll never deny you. Doesn't pride go before a fall? And Peter was putting so much faith in his own strength and uh, loyalty to Jesus. He wasn't prepared for what he faced that next day. And he denied the Lord three times that morning. He was restored. His greatest years of ministry were yet future. And at the end of his life, he was given the choice of recounting or recanting, I should say, his faith in Christ or being crucified. And Peter refused to renounce or recant his faith in Jesus. And as they led him to the place where his crucifixion would take place, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Will you please crucify me upside down? So Peter was faithful to the end, wasn't he? I believe that what the Lord is saying here is that the outward confession of a person's mouth backed up with the actions of their life is a reflection of genuine faith in their heart. Now, that's not to say that a genuine Christian can't let fear get to them at times, like Peter, where they deny the Lord in a given situation. But listen to me. The general pattern of their life will be to stand up for Jesus. The general pattern. Every one of us in this room has probably let fear keep us from standing up for Jesus, maybe at work or some other place with friends or somebody. And we're, didn't we feel horrible about that? I should have said something. You know, I had an opportunity right there. I could have stood up for the Lord, and you didn't. That's okay. The Lord will give you strength for the next time. It just shows you and I how weak we are. And we are not to put faith in our own strength, but say, Lord, I need your grace and strength. Because as Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm what? I'm really strong. Now, the Lord goes on to say that that kind of commitment to him will bring conflict between the believer in Christ 
and every other person in their life for the most part, listen, starting with those closest to them, which are the members of their own families. Which brings us to the fourth thing that Jesus is teaching us here about true discipleship. The true disciples of Christ are hated by the world. Disciples of Christ are not to fear the world. True disciples of Christ openly proclaim him to the world. And number four, disciples of Christ love him more than anyone in the world. Before I read this, let me just say this. The all-consuming love, loyalty, and commitment to Jesus required to be one of his disciples will have an adverse effect upon even the closest relationships in your life. That is why Jesus said in verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Now listen. You have to understand that Jesus is talking to his disciples, his apostles at this point. These were Jewish men. And all their lives they were taught that when Messiah came, he would lead them in a revolt against Rome, that he would lead the Jewish people in a revolt against Rome, throw off the yoke of Roman oppression, and establish his kingdom upon the earth, which would be a kingdom of peace, prosperity, and, the disciples figured, those who were his closest men, prominence. See? They were looking for the kingdom because they wanted peace from Roman oppression. They wanted prosperity. Well, that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. For when the Messiah came, he would bring a time of peace and prosperity. But these men also believed it was going to be a time of prominence for them personally. That's why they were always fighting amongst each other. Who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who was going to be the prime minister? Who was going to sit in Jesus' left hand or his right hand? It's because they were fighting for positions of honor. The kingdom was coming, they felt. And Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom is coming, but not like you think. We're going to find out later in chapter 13, the kingdom at this time never did come outwardly. It came inwardly. He was rejected by the leaders of Israel, but he turned to individuals and said, anyone who receives me into their heart as king over their lives, the kingdom will come in you. But see, that wasn't going to happen outwardly at this time. So Jesus wanted to dispel that myth that he came to bring peace on the earth politically, globally. Now I know it's true that the Bible calls Jesus Christ the Prince of Peace, and he is, who came to bring peace on earth. I mean, wasn't this heralded by the angels at his birth when they declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men? See, you need to understand that the peace that Jesus came to bring the world at his first coming was peace between God and man. The peace he will bring to the world at his second coming is going to be an outward, political, global peace between man and his fellow man. But first things first, right? We will never have peace with each other until we first make peace with God. That's what Paul said in Romans 5, verse 1, didn't he? He said that sin entered into the world and divided God from mankind, separated us, broke our fellowship, We were no longer in fellowship with God, friends of God. Now we were the enemies of God. Sin had caused God to turn his face away from us as human beings. That's why Jesus came into the world. He came to die for our sins and that his death, his blood shed on our behalf would satisfy. The theological term is propitiate God's righteousness. God's righteousness was now satisfied. Sin had to be paid for. We couldn't do it. Sinners can't die for sinners. It took the death of the righteous to die for the guilty. Jesus was the only righteous man who ever lived because he was born without sin. Virgin born. And so he came the first time 
to bring reconciliation between God and man. And the only way that happens is when a person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, folks, he's coming back again. And we think soon. And when he comes back the second time, he is going to bring peace between man and his fellow man. We will live in a world where he will be reigning visibly from Jerusalem over the entire world. And we've talked about this. The Bible has a lot to say about this in the Old Testament. How when he brings the kingdom, there'll be no more wars. We're going to take all the implements of war, beat them into implements of farming. Every man will sit under his own fig tree and not be afraid because he will not allow evil to reign. That thing that happened in Colorado this weekend, that is the result of evil in our society. A society, for the most part, that has turned its back on God. You sow the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. God says, you seek me, you'll be found by me. You forsake me, I'll forsake you. I always get a, it's always interesting to me when something like this happens. The question that unbelievers will always come up with is, where was God? Where was God? And I always say, you know, you know where God was? He was where you put him. You threw him out. You threw him out of your school. We've thrown him out of our nation. Oh, that doesn't mean people aren't still religious. Doesn't mean that people still don't go to church or synagogue or something else like that. But God is not really ruling over their life. They're doing their own thing. They're giving God lip service, maybe. As we have turned our backs on God as a nation and we have shown him the door, we will not have this man rule over us, they said of Jesus. That's exactly what we've done in America. There is no king in, no king in America. There is no king on the throne of our hearts. Therefore, everyone is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. And we are seeing evil proliferating now. Someday, when Jesus comes back, that will be no more. He will reign in righteousness and bring peace between man and his fellow men. But until that day, guys, the reality is that when a person makes peace with God, listen, their friends and family declare war with them. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying here in verse 34. He said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Of course, this would be an allegorical sword of conflict and division which he then elaborates on in verses 35 and 6. He said, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. The word against there comes from a Greek word that means to cut in two. It's a word that denotes a complete and, listen, often permanent separation. Listen to what the Lord is saying. He is saying the cost of true discipleship is often severe and lifelong. Separating a Christian from family and friends sometimes, listen, for the rest of their lives. I just talked to a woman after first service who was telling me that they were raised in a particular denomination, her and her husband, and then they both got saved. And the family absolutely turned against them. And even did some physical violence to her. You know, Jesus was speaking to Jewish believers. In Israel back then, and even to this day, in an Orthodox Jewish family, 
If one of the kids becomes a Christian, they will hold a funeral for that child and declare them dead and will sever all ties with that child for the rest of their life. It costs something to follow Jesus. If it's done right. If you're really living for him, it's going to separate you from the people you're closest to. How many of us can testify, when I got saved, I'll tell you, when I got saved, I lost all my friends. And my family didn't like me too much either. That's the price you pay. Now, Warren Worsby, author, said this. He said, the only way for a believer to escape this conflict with your family and so on is to deny Christ and compromise his witness. And this, though, would be sin. For then the believer would be at war with God. We will be misunderstood and persecuted even by those that we are closest to. Yet we must not allow this to affect our witness. It is important that we suffer for Jesus' sake and for righteousness' sake, and not because we ourselves are difficult to live with. That's true. There is a difference between the offense of the cross, Galatians 5.11, and offensive Christians, end quote. So listen, we're going to be persecuted. I mean, and, and even our closest friends and family members are going to want to separate from us. But make sure that they're separating from you, not because you're being obnoxious now, but simply because you're letting your light shine. There are some Christians who get people who get saved and become Christians, and they are so obnoxious. And then when people want to, you know, don't want to have anything to do with them, they thank God as if they're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. So listen, the commitment required to be a disciple of Christ and the resulting consequences are not trivial. That's why Jesus admonished us to count the cost before becoming one of His disciples. But He goes on to say that if you decide to make that commitment, know this. It is absolute and non-negotiable. Verse 37, Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus would go on to articulate this in the letter he dictated to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 when he said, I must be your first love. And the Greek word for first means supreme above all others. And when Jesus talked about love, he wasn't talking about a feeling or an emotion. He was talking about a commitment. Because that's what that Greek word really implies. A commitment, agape love. It's God's love. Jesus saying, look, you must be committed to me first above everybody and everything else. Now, there are those who, when they read that verse, verse 37, where they listen to us, you know, maybe listen to me teach on this, might be some who are thinking to themselves, see, that's a cult. I knew those Christians were a cult, see? Those born-agains, they're a cult. You know, look at, look at right here, you know, you know, you, you got to be have loyalty to nobody but Jesus, right? They're trying to, to, to divide and destroy families, aren't they? Look, the reality is that when we, when we love Jesus more than anyone or anything else in our lives and we follow everything he commanded us to do as his disciples by loving others sacrificially the way he loved us, guess what? That's going to make us better husbands and fathers and wives and mothers and sons and daughters, etc. Hey, the cults want to separate you from your family and have you only show loyalty to them. Well, as Christians, Jesus Christ wants our total loyalty, but he sends us back into our families. He doesn't want to divide us from our families, right? 
And there are times that our relationship with him will divide rather than unify, as we've already said. But that's not our fault. That's not what we want. That's the res- just the result of the darkness trying to separate itself from the light, isn't it? That's what it is. When you're a light and you come into the darkness, and that means your family or the circle of friends you used to hang with or the world in general, Jesus said, look, those who are of the truth, who are of the light, they're going to receive you. Those who are of the darkness are going to try to extinguish the light. Darkness doesn't want to hang out with light. And so, yeah, our relationship with Christ will divide us at times with our families. That's not what we want, though. We want to see them saved. We want to get closer. I've had more than one person say, you know what? A young person who was rebellious and, and gave their parents all kinds of trouble, and they got saved, and they said, you know what? I never even really knew how to love my parents until I became a Christian. The sad thing about it is we had one gal in the church years ago, young gal, teenager. She was real wild, real promiscuous. Then she gets saved. And she starts really walking with the Lord and reading her Bible and doing all kinds of godly things. You know what her dad said to her? I liked you better before you were a Christian. Yeah, because darkness likes darkness. That wasn't her fault. She was just living in the light. So our love for Jesus must supersede all other loves in our lives, including, listen to me, the love of self. And that's what the Lord goes on to say in verses 38 and 9. He says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, verse 39 especially seems like a paradox. I mean, we know that there are a lot of things Jesus said that to the natural mind do seem paradoxical. I mean, let me give you some examples. He said things like the first will be last. And the last will be first. He said, when it comes to the kingdom, if you want to be somebody, you're going to be nobody. He said in Luke 6.38, the more you give away, the richer you'll be. He said, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. But if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. Or in other words, the way down is the way up, and the way up is the way down. Chew on that for a while. I mean, he said things like that all the time. In verse 39, he said, if you want to live, you have to what? Die. I mean, what does that mean? What kind of death is he referring to? Well, for some Christians, it does mean literal physical martyrdom. But for the vast majority of us who are Christians, it means, he said, pick up your cross. You know, that's interesting because that statement, you know, you got to pick up your cross and follow me. You know, people have defined what that means all kinds of ways. I'm talking about unbelievers now. Okay. Isn't it interesting how unbelievers will pick up little Christian verbiage, you know, little, uh, you know, little things from the Bible, you know? I'm still looking for God helps those who help themselves. So if you find that, let me know. I'm, but the, wor- the world makes up verses, uh, but they will take true verses, right? You know, Jesus said, "I'm to carry my cross." Well, my cross is my mother-in-law, you know, and oh, you know, I tell woman, it's just so difficult to deal, you know. I've heard people say, my cross is my illness. This chronic thing I have to live with every day. Look, your mother-in-law might be difficult to live with, and I'm sure a chronic illness is no fun. But that's not what the Lord meant when he said, to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. Because everybody in that culture knew exactly what that meant. They had all seen condemned criminals carrying their crosses to the place of execution. They knew it meant to die. 
But what death is he talking about? Well, he's simply talking about dying to our rights, our comforts, our interests, our will, and our goals. I mean, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you have to give up your life. You have to die to you to follow him. It means giving up all that stuff. Dying to our hopes and dreams. Dying to everything that is of self. To die means to lay it down, to give it up, to let it go. In other words, the Lord is giving all of us a choice here in these verses. He is basically saying, look, if you want to be one of my disciples, you've got to give up your earthly life now to live for, to serve, to suffer, and need be to die for my sake. Because if you do, you will gain everlasting life. You'll be with me in heaven someday forever. But if you choose to live for yourself now, to live for your pleasures and your goals and for your self-fulfillment, you can go and do that. But know this, someday you'll be separated from me forever in hell. And he would add something to think about later in chapter 16 for all those who were contemplating choosing the latter. He would say in verse 26, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And what he's saying is, look, if you're thinking about choosing to keep your life now for yourself, to do everything that makes you happy, pursue all the things that you find pleasurable, you live for pleasure and money and whatever else, you can do that. But you know what? Even if you could somehow gain the entire world, if you could somehow be king of the entire world, is that worth trading your eternal soul for? How long can you really, you know, if you were the richest person in the world that had access to everything the world had to offer, all the power, all the pleasure, all the materialism, and so on, how long could you really enjoy it for? 40, 50, 60 years, maybe more? Let's say you could enjoy it for another 500 years but then face a Christless eternity. Is that really worth it? You know, interestingly, Moses was facing a a situation just like that. He was in line for the throne. Moses could have been the king or the leader of the entire world someday. But it says in Hebrews chapter 11, he realized that he could only enjoy the world's pleasures for a short time and then he was going to die. And we have to face eternity apart from God. Instead, he chose to die to himself at that time for the rest of his life, to live for God, to suffer persecution, and so on, to someday then live with the Lord forever in heaven. That was about 3,500 years ago that Moses lived and died. Do you think he regrets that decision today? Do you think he's in heaven saying, you know what, I wish I would have just lived for myself down on that earth, man. I really missed out on some fun. No, I guarantee he's not saying that. All right, and quickly, Jesus finishes this section with a final principle of discipleship. One more time, let me give them to you. Disciples of Christ are hated by the world. Disciples of Christ are not to fear the world. Disciples of Christ openly proclaim him to the world. Disciples of Christ love him more than anyone in the world. Number five, disciples of Christ will be rewarded for how they supported the work of God while living in the world. Verse 40, Jesus said, He who receives me, receives, he who receives you receives me. Thank you. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. 
He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in my name, uh, in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. What is the Lord saying? He is saying, look, guys, I'm sending you out into a hostile world. Now, let me encourage you a little bit, he's saying. The world is going to hate you, persecute you, and they're going to want to kill you. But I have people out there who belong to me, and they will help you, they will support you, they will encourage you along the way. And I'm telling you this, Jesus is saying, if anyone receives a prophet into their home, they will receive a prophet's reward. If they receive somebody who is not officially a prophet, but somebody who is a believer, a righteous person, who is sharing the gospel and going out, serving the Lord, and they take care of that person, support their ministry, they're going to receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, that would be a disciple of low significance. It might even be a young believer. Jesus is saying, look, anyone who takes care of my people, helps them in whatever, is going to be rewarded. And I keep excellent records. I won't let you lose a reward even if you give a cup of cold water to one of my servants in my name. These, Jesus said, shall share in the rewards those who go out to preach will receive themselves. You know what? We're all in this together, aren't we? Paul the Apostle says, some plant, some water, God gives the increase, but on the day we stand before Jesus, every one of us will receive a reward for whatever part we played in the work of God. Let me close with a true story that illustrates this point. The author says, while a young boy in a country village in England struggled hard to study for the ministry, an old cobbler helped him in whatever way he could. The godly man encouraged the boy spiritually and helped support him with what little money he could spare. When the young man was finally licensed to preach, the cobbler said to him, I always had it in my heart the desire to be a minister of the gospel, but circumstances never made it possible. You are doing what was always my dream, but never a reality. I want you to let me make your shoes for nothing. And I want you to wear them in the pulpit when you preach. In that way, I will feel you are preaching the gospel I always wanted to preach, standing in my shoes, end quote. You know, we can't all be pastors, preachers, or missionaries. But I'll tell you this, we can all receive the same rewards as those people by supporting and praying for their ministries. I think of David. Remember how he was leading his men out to battle the Amalekites, but they were already weary, many of them from already having fought so many battles. Some of them just could not physically go out to another battle, so they stayed back and guarded the supplies. Remember that? Well, some of his men went out and fought and won and, and, uh, and won the battle, and they took all the spoil from the Amalekites, who they had defeated, brought it back to the camp, and they said to David, look, we're not going to share with those people who didn't go out to battle. Okay, this is our stuff. They stayed back. They didn't go with us. Therefore, they don't have a part in this treasure, this, this stuff, this, this spoil. And what did David say? He said, brethren, it must not be so. Know this. He who stays home and guards the stuff, I love that. He who stays home and guards the stuff will share equally with those who go out and take the spoil. And that is exactly the principle the Lord Jesus Christ is enunciating right here. You can't all go out to the mission field. We're not all called to be physical missionaries. But you can pray, you can support those ministries, and you know what? You will receive a missionary's reward someday. What a great thing.
What a blessed thing, you know? That I can support the work of a man or woman of God who are out there serving God and know that someday when I stand before Jesus, I'll receive the same reward as they did. So, the principles of discipleship. May God give us grace to understand that, you know what, being a disciple of Christ is not an easy life if it's done right. But folks, it is the only life worth living. It's got a great retirement program, let me tell you. (laughs) May God give us grace to be faithful to our Savior and to stand up in these last days and declare our allegiance to Him no matter what. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your kindness, your grace, for calling us to be your children, your servants. And Lord, we are living in a hostile world. Hostile in the sense that people are antagonistic against those who represent you. And that antagonism is going to become physical at one point. We know that. But Lord, give us grace to be lights. Give us grace to stand firm, to not fear the world but to want to serve our God faithfully, loyally. Lord, give us strength in these last days. I don't believe for a second those three boys who faced death at the ages of 11 through 15 stood in their own strength. Their words reflect a power and a strength in the grace of God. Your spirit was upon them. Father, pour your spirit upon us that we can be faithful to the end and to be lights in the darkness. Father, we thank you. We want to hear you say someday, Lord Jesus, well done, good and faithful servants. Give us the grace, Lord, to live for you faithfully in these last days. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.